1774, William Cooper penned these words. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright design and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. The notorious hymn known as God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and it is perhaps that first verse that most arrests me. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. I don't know about Cooper or about you, but for me, this verse conjures up in my mind images of Jesus walking upon a churning sea amidst a whipping wind. And it's to that sign in John's gospel that we turn our attention this morning. We've been going through the seven signs in John's gospel, and we find ourselves in chapter 6, and we will be considering together verses 16 through 21. And what is incredible about this miracle is just how textured it is. There is so much to it that is packed into this small, short section that, that seems to interrupt a discussion about the loaves that Jesus has just multiplied. But what I think we ought to see, the main thing that John wants to bring our attention to, is that while Jesus rejects the coronation of the crowds, he still is the king. And what we see in this short section, I've summarized this way. Jesus shows his disciples the glory of God, walks where God walks, and talks like God talks. He is the great I am. He is the dragon slayer. I want to exhort you this morning to take fresh courage as you put your faith in Christ, even when the hour seems dark. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, and what we know not teach us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's put this story in context and just read together the first 15 verses of John 6. After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A huge crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. 
Now we're going to pause there for a second because throughout this section are these little clues or breadcrumbs that John has scattered that allude to the Exodus and to Moses. So we have here Jesus going up on a mountain to give instruction. He's going to make this subtle note of the season that it is, that it's Passover in verse 4. We're also going to see Jesus distributing loaves miraculously to those who are gathered at the foot of the mountain in groups of tens and fifties. There's going to be 12 basketfuls left over. And then he's going to cross across, cross across, go across water. All of these things are illusions. All of these things are meant to take our attention back to the Old Testament and back to the Exodus, back to Moses. What John is doing is he's painting a picture for us so that we might see in these illusions that Jesus is the greater Moses, creating for himself a new people, leading a new exodus out of slavery to sin and into sonship. I just mentioned that here at the fore so you can you know, kind of have those in the back of your mind and and pick up on them as we read through the text. Verse 4, Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked Philip, Where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? He asked this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to have a little. One of his disciples Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish as much as they wanted. When they were full, he told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus performs this miracle, this sign that we discussed at length last week, identifying himself as the bread of life, the one that people can come to for satisfaction and life. But here we see he is tempted. Surely, it would seem more attractive to be made an earthly and political king of his people, Israel, and with 5,000 soldiers at his back, to attack their enemies. I mean, surely this would have been a more attractive prospect than having a crown of thorns pressed upon his head having nails hammered into his hands and into his feet so that he might be suspended upon a Roman cross as he suffocated to death. 
Certainly this would have been a temptation to have a crown without the cross. It is one of the temptations that Satan throws his way when he is being tempted. And yet Jesus resolves not to be made a king in this way. He is committed to the mission of God. He's committed to going to the cross. It's not as if Jesus doesn't know where his life is going. He knows the plan of God. He is going to go to the cross and die so that his people, those who repent of their sin and put their faith in him, might have life. He's going to die in their place for their sins. And so he rejects the crown of the crowds in favor of marching towards his own death. He will sacrifice himself for his people. Christian, this is a moment in Jesus' life, one of many, where he resolved to love you, to give himself for you, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate for you. He was born so that he might die for his people's sins. Jesus is committed to loving you. He he gave up heaven for you. This is is incredible. He refused a crown without a cross and chose to bleed so you might live eternally. The God who created all that is shed his blood for you. His heart beats for you. This is good news. Don't ever doubt the love that God has for you. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, you've repented of your sins, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are secure in your salvation. And God loves you just as much on your best day as he does on your worst day. He loves you so much that while you were in rebellion against Him, while we were yet sinners, He went to the cross. He died for you while you were still a mess, while you were still wagging your fist at God saying, I'm not going to listen to your word, I'm going to do it my way. And still He resolved to die for you and raise up again victorious over the grave. Indeed, God is good. And you mustn't doubt the love He has for you. Non-Christian, Jesus calls you to Himself. He died so that if you will turn from your sins, you can be forgiven for them. He's purchased that forgiveness with His blood. You must receive it by faith. Jesus, when they come to make him king, 
resists this temptation and withdraws to the mountain. And, and I love how the parallel accounts fill in some of the details for us. Mark uh, telling us the same story in chapter 6 of his gospel in verse 45 writes this. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. And so Jesus meets this temptation to perhaps forsake the mission of the cross with prayer. How do you meet temptation? When you are tempted towards idolatry or gossip or anger or hatred or laziness or self-righteousness or pride or greed or cynicism, how do you meet that temptation? Jesus prays. He's had a long day. You know, he just multiplied some barley biscuits and some fish relish and fed 5,000 people with it. Avoided being made king. You, you would think, you know, if it were me, a little bit tired. He's going to come home. He's going to get in his, in his favorite chair. Nice, nice soda or drink of some kind. Maybe his favorite snack. Turn on the TV and relax. I mean, he's earned it. But that's not what Jesus does. He resists temptation and he comes home at the end of a long day and he prays. I wonder how shocking it would be in your home if you share a home with a spouse or someone else. If you came home after a long day of work and, and, and your significant other said to you, well, what are you going to do this evening? I've had a long day. I think, I think you probably deserve to relax. And you responded, I'm, I, re I'm gonna, I'm, I really need to pray. Would there be shock in your heart? What? Pray? Oh, friends, prayerlessness is faithlessness. And if you want to have an intimate relationship with God, if you want to experience the steadfast love of the Lord more personally, you must pray. If you want to kill your sin, you must pray pray. If you want to have victory over temptation, you must pray. That's what Jesus does here. Jesus prays. And he sends his disciples away, which is, is curious. Did you, did you see that in verse 45 of Mark 6? It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. This is really curious. That's the first question in your outline. Why do the disciples, why are they on a boat alone? Well, here's the answer from Mark 6.45. Jesus made them get into the boat alone, and he sent them across the sea. He sent them into a storm so that they might see him more clearly. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides his smiling face. Jesus intends for his disciples in the midst of this storm to come to know him more intimately. 
to love Him more deeply. He intends to reveal to them more of Himself so that their joy might be fuller than it's ever been. So they might see who He is and worship. That's the consequence of all this in Matthew's Gospel. They fall down and worship. Friends, I want you to know that when you go into hardship in your life, it's not happening to you by accident. Jesus sends the disciples into this storm knowing that the waves are going to turn up and knowing that the wind is going to whip at their backs. And friends, He sends you into hardships knowing that it is going to be most difficult. Sometimes the light of the world sends us into darkness so that He might draw us in closer to Himself. He sends the disciples into a storm so that He might reveal Himself to them, so they might learn to trust Him more. Likewise, your adversity is an opportunity to see God more clearly, to trust Him more deeply, to love Him more. Jesus sends them into a storm. Verse 16 of John chapter 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. High wind arose, and the sea began to churn. Fear begins to grip the disciples. After they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. This storm is enough that they've only gotten three or four miles as they've tried to row against the wind. That's not very far since they left at evening, and it's probably about 4 a.m. at this point in the story. And so they are making progress very, very slowly. And in the darkness, they make out the silhouette of some type of being, and the other gospel accounts tell us they assume it's a ghost, and they become afraid. And thinking it is a ghost is not, it's not actually that far-fetched, right? It's at least as plausible as actually that's a human being walking on the water, right? People don't walk on water. I mean, sure, maybe you can go to Vegas and they have one of those pools set up with like plexiglass under the water and they can, they can make it appear so, but, but this is not that. This isn't a, a cheap parlor trick. This is a suspension of the laws of nature. And the disciples are afraid. It doesn't even cross their mind that it could be Jesus. They're thinking, this, is a, this has to be a ghost of some kind. This is some supernatural thing. You know, maybe they're thinking, what was in that bread that we ate? They're not expecting Jesus. And yet Jesus sent them there. And he said to them, 
verse 20. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board. And at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. Jesus put the disciples on this boat and sent them away from himself into darkness so that he might come to them. Come to them here in John. And again, the parallel account is helpful. Mark 6, 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Listen to this. He meant to pass them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. He meant to pass them by. This is not like Jesus intended to like sneak past them on the water. Right? It's, a, it's a pretty significant lake. He could have easily dodged them if he wanted to. Right? Is this Jesus trying to be sneaky and, oh man, you guys saw me, found me? No. Jesus intends to be seen walking on the water. He intends to pass them by. And so we ask the question, why? Well, let us think back to Exodus 33 and verse 18. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, Remember from Mark's account, Jesus means to pass them by. While my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. There's another scene in the Old Testament that's it's very similar to this. Elijah, remember, he, he goes up on the mountain and they're at Mount Carmel, and they want to see whose God is the real God. And the prophets of Baal have their sacrifices out. And if Baal will just send fire from heaven and prove himself real, uh, Elijah will concede. And they cut themselves and they call out and there's hundreds of them and nothing happens. And then Elijah's like, well, let me show you that Yahweh is the true God. And so he gets his sacrifice ready, dumps water all over the sacrifices, and then he prays and fire whew, comes from heaven and just burns everything up. And Elijah thinks... This is really good. Israel is going to repent and return to the Lord. I mean, they even kill all these hundreds of prophets of Baal. But what Elijah discovers is that Jezebel is not ready to lead the people into repentance. People are not ready to follow the Lord their God. And so Elijah flees. He, he runs away. And as he is in hiding, God finds him and says to him in 1 Kings 19.11, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, 
and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. See, the same word that is used in Mark's account for passing them by is the word that's used for pass by when Moses asks God to show him his glory. And it's the same word that's used in 1 Kings 19 when the Lord passes by Elijah. You see, what's happening here, the reason Jesus intends to pass his disciples by, the reason he comes near the boat in the middle of a raging storm is to show them his glory. To show them that he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Who does that? God. Jesus is revealing himself as the glory of of God as God himself. And he also does this to demonstrate his power. The only being who controls weather and winds is God himself. The Bible is full of this. Right? One thinks of Genesis, how God utilizes the flood to bring judgment on a people. Then he causes those same floodwaters to recede as he has favor on Noah and his family. He leads his people through the Red Sea, dividing it in half. The Psalms are filled with commentary on the Lord's power as it is demonstrated, as he exercises his sovereign will over nature. Psalm 29.3 The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Psalm 77, 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they trembled. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, and yet your footprints were unseen. Psalm 89, 8-9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. God's power is demonstrated in his complete sovereignty over nature. And not just over nature, but over the sea specifically. And not just over the sea, but over the creatures that inhabit the sea. I think sometimes as 21st century readers, we're still in the 21st century, I think. As modern readers... What century are we in? Somebody help me. 21. I said, I had it right. I heard some whispers after that. They were like, idiot. <laughs> As modern readers, we sometimes miss some of the colors and textures of this text. You see, in the first century mind, 
I got that one right. In the first century mind, the sea wasn't just the sea. Like for us, we think about, about the ocean and we're like, all right, holiday, going to the beach, sitting in my chair, playing some volleyball. Maybe you're one of those people, you like to go on a cruise on a big boat. But in the first century, the sea was not this place that you went on holiday. The sea was a place of chaos and destruction and death. It represented these things. I mean, think about it. On the water, on the open water, in the ancient world, you were not very safe. Many things would kill you. And so the sea is often this stand-in for destruction. It's often this stand-in for the realm of evil spirits. And indeed, the Bible picks up on that imagery. One of the ways it does this is by utilizing a creature called Leviathan. And Leviathan is a, it's a dragon and snake-like creature that inhabits the sea. I love how Ezekiel images Pharaoh and Egypt as a great dragon in Ezekiel 29. He says, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws. And make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams. With all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. And I will cast you out into the wilderness. You and all the fish of your streams. You shall fall on the open field. And be brought together. Not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens. I give you as food. This, this great dragon in Ezekiel, in, in one sense, represents a, a crocodile that would inhabit the Nile and, and holds within it uh, the imagery of Pharaoh and of Egypt as the enemy of God. And in another sense, it, men, it means to stand in as a cosmic creature that is opposed to God and his will, that God must defeat. This same kind of imagery is picked up in Isaiah 27.1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So you see that Leviathan, this dragon, this serpent is an ancient symbol of evil. Where have we seen a serpent in the Bible before? Right, Genesis 3. It's the evil one whispers into the ear of Eve, take and eat. Rule yourself. And where else in the Bible do we see a dragon? Right, Revelation 12. The dragon is cast out of heaven. With all this imagery in mind, ask yourself, where does Leviathan, this great dragon, this ancient sea monster, this symbol of evil, make its dwelling? Well, Isaiah 27.1. In the sea. See, so, is it coming into focus a little bit what Jesus is doing here? 
He is walking where God walks, and he is physically pronouncing, I do what God does. He is ruler not only of the sea and the wind and of the realm which is seen, but he is ruler of the unseen realm. He is treading upon the sea, walking on top of the forces of evil. Indeed, his foot is above the head of the serpent that he will crush when he dies upon the cross and rises again. Jesus is the one who will slay the dragon. He has mastery over every realm. He is God in the flesh. He walks upon the sea to demonstrate that indeed he is God. He walks where God walks. Psalm 74, 12. Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures in the wilderness. Jesus is the God who will slay the enemies of his people who will slay the dragon. And Jesus not only walks where God walks, he talks like God talks. Notice where he goes and what he says when he comes near to the boat. He walks upon the water as God walks. They're afraid, and he says to them, It is I. Now this is an incredible unveiling. Things have been pretty impressive already, but, but this is, is that whoa moment. I recently watched an old Russell Crowe movie called Gladiator. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with it. And one of my favorite parts of the movie is when the main character, Maximus, reveals himself to the antagonist. There's a lot going on. It's in ancient Rome. He's a gladiator. They're in the Colosseum. And the Caesar had arranged for the murder of Russell Crowe's, Maximus's wife and child, and, and basically sentenced him to death also. Somehow Maximus has survived, and he's fighting as a gladiator, which is unexpected. And the Caesar comes down. He's got a helmet on. He doesn't know who he is. And he demands, he says, slave, you know, who are you? And he comes, this is my favorite moment in the movie. He takes his helmet off. And he says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And everybody goes, wow, we were really impressed with this fighting in the Colosseum. But man, we had no idea who he was. This is, whoa, how can this guy even be alive? And it's this, this crazy unveiling. What Jesus does here is way more significant. But it is a similar unveiling. He says to the disciples his name. What do I mean? In John's account, he says, it is I. 
And you'll notice, if you're familiar with Matthew's account and Mark's account, that they add on the front end, Jesus says, take courage, it is I. And John has purposefully shortened it to just, it is I, in anticipation of what's coming in his gospel more explicitly in chapter 8. And to focus our attention on Jesus' self-revelation here. You see, the phrase, it is I, comes from the Greek, ego, me. And you probably have a footnote in your Bible that tells you how it translates literally. It is I literally is rendered, I am. I am. And once more, we're taken back to the Exodus. Chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus says to the disciples, I am. Do not be afraid. God has not sent another to his people to rescue them from sin and death. He has come himself. Jesus, in the midst of their fear, comes to them and comforts them. He says, I am. Do not be afraid. If you're a parent, you've probably had the experience of being awoken late at night by a, a crying child who has had a nightmare of some sort. They're maybe trembling a little bit. And you come to them, and what do you do? You, you wrap them in your arms, and you say, I love you. I'm here. I've got you. You're safe. Friends, this is exactly how God relates to us as his people. When you are in fear, when you are worried, when you are in despair, remember that the God who split apart the Red Sea has come down in the person of Jesus Christ, walked upon the water, revealed himself as the great I Am, been crucified for sins, been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God right now and is returning to make all things new. And remember, this is the God who says to you, I am. Do not be afraid. I just don't know what's next for my life. Jesus says, I am. I've got you. Do not be afraid. Do not look at the winds that whip around you. Do not fear the darkness. But set your eyes on the light of the world. He calms every storm. He rules over your difficulties, over your trials. He rules over everything. And he is a good king.
Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Jesus, when he sent the disciples into this storm, probably had a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. So too when he sends us into difficulty. For it's in our trials that he reveals himself to us most intimately. It is in our trials that we taste and see that the Lord is good most sweetly. Jesus is to be trusted. So take courage. He has overcome the world. He rules the seas and everything that is within them. And he will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for your steadfast love which endures forever. We thank you for your word, for by it we come to know you. Teach us to walk in your ways and fill us with your spirit. We ask all these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together this morning. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we, who are many, are one body. Because all of us share the one bread. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A lot of pressure to open this thing up here. Body of Christ broken for you.
blood of Christ shed for you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that indeed there is a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And that sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The blood of Christ is our hope. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.